Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to Literary Arts, the Archive Project. I'm your host this week, Amanda Bullock. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This week, we have a conversation recorded exclusively for our show. We're featuring Portland Youth Philharmonic, the nation's oldest youth orchestra, currently in their 99th season. And we've brought together a conductor, a composer, a poet, and a vocalist to discuss their cross-disciplinary collaboration on a poetry-inspired piece titled Because I Will Not Despair. The piece is based on the poetry of Oregon Literary Fellowship recipient and Oregon Book Award finalist Alicia Jo Rabins. Composer Jessica Meyer has adapted Rabin's poetry to music, and vocalist Anna Song and her all-female vocal ensemble will join Portland Youth Philharmonic's Chamber Orchestra, conducted by David Hatner, to perform this new piece in Portland on May 5th. It's especially interesting to hear these four collaborators, Alicia, Jessica, Anna, and David, discuss work that is ongoing, as the piece is still being shaped. At one point, Alicia shares that the inspiration behind one of the poems was the Notre Dame fire in Paris. And you can hear in real time how that revelation slightly shifts each collaborator's understanding of the work. Another striking thing about this conversation in terms of the literary arts, in this case, poetry, was how different it is for a composer or a conductor or a vocalist versus a poet or writer to put their work into the world. While there is a conversation between a writer and her reader, the writer rarely has the opportunity to witness that conversation. And writers will read their work out loud, certainly, but they typically read their own work. They're not performing someone else's composition the way a musician, a vocalist, or even an actor often does. Rabins phrases it well, saying, quote, As artists, we are part of one massive human conversation, and we put as much as we can into the piece or the performance, and the people interacting with it are what make that a complete process, whether that's the audience or the reader or another artist you're collaborating with, end quote. Most music, I would say, requires collaboration and interpretation because of the requirements of performance, and hearing how inspiring it is for these musical artists on this piece to work with, as they say, a living poet, and their poetry and text is a real pleasure. We'll join the conversation between Anna Song, Inmoli Iribus's co-founding artistic director and conductor, David Hatner, conductor of Portland Youth Philharmonic, award-winning composer and violist Jessica Meyer, and Portland-based poet, musician, and Torah scholar Alicia Jo Rabins. So why don't we start the discussion today with the composer of this new piece of music that's going to have its premiere in about a month, Jessica Meyer. Tell us a little bit about how you approach text when you're going to have to write music that, first of all, sets it, and then how you um, introduce the text with music by itself before you get to the part where there is text. Um, Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Thanks, David. Um, I'm so excited about this premiere. (laughs) You have no idea. Uh, I, I love setting text. I... I'm trained as a violist, but I also sing. And there is something so immediate about having to set text is that it kind of does the job for me as far as really setting the mood or or once I dig into the meanings that come across to me behind the text that it kind of makes my job easy to figure out what poems would be what movement and what kind of mood they would have. When we started this piece, first of all, Alicia and I go like back 10 years. uh, One of the first things I was doing before I became a composer, almost 10 years ago, I was writing stuff for myself in Looper. And it was right after visiting her in Portland that, um, and meeting a bunch of other people that I, on the way home, had this idea for a piece. And um, then became a, 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 you know acquainted with her poetry. So 
I had used some of her poetry for a different show that I have for Looper and Dancer. And then I was, when this project came up, I saw it, send me a bunch of whatever you got. And usually my process when setting text is I have to sort of cull through a bunch of different set like ideas uh, or poems. And then I kind of take the ones that grab me in a sort of a visceral, emotional way and kind of just put them in front of me. And then I figure out if I had to sequence these in a way to make an arc uh, for a piece, then, you know, that becomes the next very important step and being super clear to myself, like, well, how does one go to the other, go to the other? And what's the big idea? And then I would say the next step after that is just um, really letting them sit in my head and ruminate as far as what what sounds come up for me in order to express these words, uh, both like what the obvious things are and then like the meta behind. That's what's so wonderful about poetry. And then it's I start making a plan, just sketch. Like I actually have the text printed out with space underneath it and just start even drawing shapes underneath it or circling what words are super important. And oftentimes when I'm working with text, I always ask the poet, is it okay to take that license that a composer does to like, you know, maybe um, resequence a particular, or like repeat a certain phrase. Uh, and, and, and I know in the very, um, in, in the last poem that I set because uh, because I will, because I will not, because I will not despair, because I will not despair, I, because I will not despair, I resist. And then I feel like there needs to be this vamp on, I resist, I resist, I resist. And so I think that's the beauty about working with living po poets is that you could ask and like get permission and be like, can I play around with this? And she's like, sure. and. And then I wanted to refer to the first poem that the end of it has the most, you know, poignant line and something that I've just feel that anybody who's been on any kind of personal journey and their own like awakening of self, like this line is just so important. And that is sometimes healing looks like breaking. And so I wanted to make sure that at the end of the piece, we kind of circle back to that. And so again, having that kind of permission and working with living poets makes Again, my job easy. So that's a little bit of an insight of how the process was anyway. Thank you, Jessica. Let's talk to Alicia Joe Rabins, who is the author and poet that uh, has inspired the music that we'll hear. Talk about this group of poems. Uh, Jessica assembled it. How do you feel they flow together? Um, I find that I tend to write around some central obsessions, which is pretty common for, for authors and writers of all genres that often you'll sort of look back at the last 10 or 15 years and say, well, I'm sort of writing the same question over and over through different approaches. Um, and so I loved seeing what Jessica chose and um, how it reflects on themes of, like she said, um, healing and breaking and um, self kind of self, you know, growing and coming into oneself and how sometimes in order to find your own power and voice, there's a lot of letting go that also has to happen. And so those are all things that I may not necessarily say directly in a poem, um, but that's a lot of the energy that underlies these poems. And um, it was really lovely to see which poems Jessica chose and then which order she put them in. And, um, you know, as a living poet, <laughs> I feel like it's a great honor to have somebody interact with, with my work in this way. And I haven't heard the piece yet. I'm so excited to hear it. But even just seeing the way that she arranged the, the poems and which lines she chose to bring back, because um, I've seen I've seen the text um, as kind of edited by Jessica. Um, and it just feels like a really wonderful collaboration where the, the beating heart of of making something new feels very alive in this project. That's fantastic. I, I can't wait to hear it either. Currently, I'm in rehearsals on the, the notes of the orchestra part and making sure that they have uh, the right energy that gets to the place where uh, the voices can enter and uh, be at their most effective. And once we hear it, a, a lot of that will will change because of our, our 
understanding of how the words have meaning. Um, Anna, your ensemble will have the job of projecting the substance of the text as well as the meaning of the notes. How do you balance all the different needs of the author, the composer, and so forth? Yes, thanks, David. Um, it's it's first of all, I just want to say how thrilled I am to be here and to finally sort of at least virtually meet uh, Alicia Joe Ravens and Jessica Meyer. It's um, just wonderful to see you and uh, have this opportunity to have this discussion. Um, I guess it's challenging, but at the same time, it's the kind of challenge that um, is so fun to dig into and uh, collaborate with in terms of, you know, when questions arise and sort of discover the essence of both the text and the music as we rehearse, especially since it is a brand new work and there is no, you know, recording and, and things like that. Um, for me, approaching uh, a piece like this with, you know, vocal music that is accompanied, I, I definitely start with the text as well. And um, as I'm looking through the score, um, think about sort of the, the syllabic stress of the of the words, but also the natural rise and fall and shape of the phrases, um, and then working sort of out from those um, more focused, smaller components into the larger arcs of the poem, and and like Jessica was talking about um, of the of the piece, you know, as a whole. Um, so for us. As I'm looking at, you know, I also have the sounds of the singers in my head because I know the voices very intimately and um, the combinations of voices. So I'm kind of looking for how to best express what the words seem to be expressing. Um, and of course, this is my interpretation. And so uh, after we have some recordings and initial rehearsals, you know, I would we, we would love to hear the feedback from both the poet and the composer um, in terms of whether we're on on track to kind of uh, to present that vision that is uh, part of how they see and hear it in their minds as well. Um, but yeah, so starting with sort of the phrasing and, and uh, shaping musically uh, how how the phrases are sung, how the words are sung. Um, and then also, you know, since Jessica has moments of, you know, where it's just one melody, one voice, um, places where it's a duet and other places, of course, where all the voices are singing together. So these changes in texture um, and then harmonically what's happening. Um, and so I'm I'm sort of trying to balance, you know, how the voices sound together, the timbres um, and depending on the range and the dynamics and, and everything like that to, again, contribute to the shaping, to the overall expression of what both music and text are aiming to do. Um, so that's my goal, at least at this point. And um, as rehearsals continue, um, like I said, I'm very looking forward to getting that feedback from, from the collaborators. So that's what I love most about working together with others. That's great. Another question for you, Anna. With your ensemble, have you spent time discussing the meaning of each poem and um, how that's going to relate to how you're performing the notes. Is that part of part of the rehearsal process or are you mostly in uh, just assembling technically to make sure you're ready to go? Well, I would, I mean, first, definitely we, um, given the amount of time that we have, we, we will start sort of with uh, more, the more technical things, just as far as um, trying to, you know, get singers familiar with what, these pieces call for and vocally, technically, um, but but definitely talking about the text and, and interpretation and overall sort of ethos of, of each poem. Um, I mean, cause that, that emotional, that imagination and the emotional element is what essentially will fuel the expression. I mean, one can talk about, oh, diminuendo here or get louder here, or you should be louder here because you have the you know third of the chord. <laughs> like all that stuff is fine, but it's not gonna mean anything. And it's gonna sound empty if the singers don't have a clear idea of why this music and these words live and breathe. Like it, they need to have that connection with with our humanity, right? With our ideas of of what it means to be alive and and be artists. Um, and I think because the texts are focused on women, uh, as as women, um, 
it speaks very much directly to our experiences, both as individuals and as shared as shared experiences as women. Um, and you know, it's really great because we have been around now for about sixteen years, and a lot of us have been singing together for almost, if not the entire time. So we've sort of traveled life together. Um, you know, we've been there when we've gotten pregnant or had kids or gotten married or, you know, just other ups and downs of our lives. And so we have that shared journey. So there's a closeness and an intimacy that that we have that is very, very much uh, special to us. And um, I think, at least I'd like to think that sets us apart a little bit from other ensembles who, you know, I mean, not, I'm not trying to say that they're not great, but um, they're not always as close knit, um, you know, their gigs for people, they get called and they do the gig. Um, whereas we're, uh, our membership is, is more or less very consistent. Fantastic. Let me go back to Jessica Meyer. Jessica, you've been a performing musician for decades. Uh, I imagine you probably played a hundred or more works uh, where you're working with text uh, as an instrumentalist. Can you talk about how all those, how you thought about those sorts of works as you think back on them and how that's informed your experience for you now as a composer to do the same thing, to set text? Yeah, I I've certainly have played, uh, performed the usual canon, you know, of like Requiem, like Foray Requiem, still one of my Desert Island pieces, will always be. Um, and Art Song, one of my favorite, uh, Frau Lieben and Leben, you know, like all, all of this, I mean, setting of song is deeply important. And then after, also after playing a lot of new music for over 25 years, I think the number one thing for me as a composer is to make sure people understand the text. And so I'm always taking great pains in making sure I set the sound so that they're not getting too much in the way of the consonants, um, that the there's power when there needs to be power. And then when they're when I'm giving the singer something really wonderfully delicate to do, just, just have everybody just provide the instruments, just get out of the way and just provide like a layer of color that's needed to make uh, I, I don't ever want to be a moment where someone's in the audience and they don't understand what they said. That, that's really what I, I strive to do. Um, and, and I think that what I also deeply uh, have enjoyed over the years is that those magical moments when the tone painting is happening and the whatever the instruments are doing, they're either foreshadowing what's going to happen or they're lining they're like illuminating the text in the moment or they're helping reflect on what just happened um so i feel like that is also whenever i'm writing to try to make sure that the emotion is always just like what anna was saying you know great technique is great technique you know but you know doing you know but but being able to express the thing that's the important part um and so that that's just what I strive for as a composer. Setting text is just just a also, you know, the standard. I, I've gotten. I, I have a commitment to myself to a add a lot more art song that has viola in it, um, but also add a lot of art song uh, that does not have piano, because I do feel that um, the piano has a wealth of colors. But it's just sort of an expected accompaniment. And, I, and what I deeply enjoy with setting other kinds of instruments is just like really exploring the wide variety of how sheer those colors can be, how percussive those colors can be, and what happens when you combine that with the human voice. I'm endlessly fascinated on the potential combinations in order to express these very specific kinds of motions that come and go in the text. So. Yeah, I, I definitely think that my experience as a player uh, has, and like my whole late life uh, composition career has only set the stage of what, all of what I've done and heard has just informed me how I'm to write, so. 
this poetry is it's not descriptive of things happening uh directly but were there points in there where you were able to create sounds that directly reference the text in the in the ensemble yeah i think that the third movement uh, by the flames i definitely set up all the different kinds of string sounds you could do to get this sort of like flickery sizzly color a lot of silpanticello tremolo a lot of uh like solo like jetes like where you throw the bow on the string and it bounces a certain amount of time and having like a round of jetes like you know uh, having these conversations with each other creating this really um anxious rhythm and then having like the cellos and basses sort of come in in this really ooey gooey threatening kind of way to talk about you know all of this 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 idea of just you know if the cathedral must burn then praise god it burns due to human error and not human cruelty you know and just i i I love figuring out what kinds of as a string player too it's it's just fun to me to reach into my grab bag of colors and techniques that I know how to do uh, after many years of playing new music and try to figure out how to weave it together in an orchestral texture in order to make some of this, uh, you know, literal kind of settings come alive. So the audience who will be hearing this for the first time uh, will hear your interpretation of fire uh it, it as reflected in string instruments and also um in the previous poem uh rain as well which which might be a little trickier uh but you have have a clever solution if you want to talk about that sure um you know it's funny in my very first song cycle um i there's a middle movement called rain where it was, it's just me and soprano and i just started improvising just these sort of like taps on the viola and then just got more busy and just try to do it as if I remember like my nine-year-old self looking out the window sullenly like it's raining I can't go outside you know and just listening to how the rain progresses when it hits things and how unregular it is so I in my first song cycle I did that on the viola myself but what's cool is when you have a bunch of like a whole orchestra do it is that you can give them different directions like okay you guys are slow here okay you guys get fast here and then the cum- cumulative effect of how to do like a quick little rainstorm just tapping by tapping on their instruments and bl- blossoming with the singers and kind of fading away um and i think that's another thing that's like super important uh about both the vocal parts and the string parts is that some of those parts might not make sense by themselves but it's the it's the you know the cumulative effect of all of them together that make the textures that help express the thing so that's why i'm really i can't wait to start listening to recordings and and being in rehearsal because i'm sure there are things where i'm going to ask like someone to really over pronounce or overdo that might not make sense like right in front of them but will make sense with the composite effect in order to express the text. Well, let's talk more about the text itself with Alicia Joe. Having just heard uh, that, I'm curious if your words have been set to music before and how your experience was in those situations. Yes, you know, my my story is kind of uh, <laughs> interesting in terms of, of this because I also grew up playing violin and viola and doing um, some music composition. And so because I was doing that as a teen, I had a lot of friends who were also writing music and needed text. And I've been a poet since I was pretty young. So I think my um, experience having my words set to music started younger (laughs) than many people did just because of that happenstance. And, you know, I, I, my approach to my work is um, when it's on the page, I'm extremely thoughtful about what it looks like and where the line breaks are. And, you know, I go over and over each word and try to make it um, as strong as possible for uh, an experience for the reader, because as a poet, you know, you sort of put your work on the page and then send it out and you're not there when it's being 
read. And so every part of the experience that you want a reader to have has to be contained in these like maybe 20, 30 words. <laughs> Sometimes they're pretty short. And so every space matters, every word choice matters. But for me, when somebody's setting it to music or doing any kind of collaboration, I've worked with dancers, I've worked with all kinds of other artists. I love interdisciplinary collaboration. And to me, that's a completely different way of interacting with a poem. And I actually get really excited about the idea of someone doing, you know, what Jessica's mentioning or was mentioning earlier about taking the existing poem and making it into something new or bringing out elements of it that I um, maybe didn't even see on my own. I mean, I, I really believe that as artists, we are sort of part of one massive human conversation. And so we put as much as we can into the the piece or the performance and then the people interacting with it actually are what makes that a complete process whether that's the audience or the reader or another artist that you're collaborating with um so it's really exciting to see what comes out um and like for example i hadn't even really put together this that one of the poems jessica chose has rain and then one of the poems has fire um and the, the fire poem is about when notre dame was uh, on fire. And I just, it was such a moment of things kind of falling apart in a lot of ways um, in the world. And I just felt this great belief that it wasn't an intentional fire. <laughs> and I'm happy to read that poem if you want, it's very short, but I just felt like, okay, at least it's just an accident. And all the humans around are coming together to try to address this in a positive way and put it out. At least this this tragedy that's happening um, was not intentional. And so I, I decided to write you know, a poem based on that and, and to also consider how human error in general can sometimes, is going to come into our relationships and that if we're going to love each other as people, we're going to have to love each other through that as well and work together in the same way that when a great mistake happens in terms of a fire in a cathedral, we have to come together and uh, not not just stand there blaming each other, but come together to solve it and how that's kind of this huge metaphor for what might happen in, in an intimate relationship. So yeah, I'm, I'm, it's, it's lovely to, to take these huge concepts, try to put them into a very short poem and then have handed off to another artist like Jessica um, and, and watch her re-expand them and make them into something new. So Alicia, um we would really love to hear you do a reading of one of the poems um, you had offered to do that for Human Error, the third movement of this piece. So would you be willing to do that? Absolutely. Human Error. If the cathedral must burn, then praise God it burns due to human error and not human cruelty, which is so plentiful these days and maybe always has been. May I love you in all your human error. May you love me in mine. Together, we make a cathedral of the simplest sunset. We hold each other, faces illuminated by the flames. Thank you. That was so, that's so amazing. Thank you for inviting that. Anna, does learning more about the origin of uh, one of the poems how does that strike you in terms of where you might be headed with your interpretation, musically speaking, and, and of course, the pronunciation of the text itself? Um, well, I was actually, um, I mean, it's kind of obvious, I guess, but just hearing Jessica talk about how important it is that every word is understood by the audience uh, and the listener. Um, I don't know, I, I was that was just exciting because I, I had been going through the score and, and emphasizing consonants and make, you know, wanting to tell the singers to make sure that we have shadow syllables at the ends of words and things just so everything is really, really clear. Um, so I was just like, yay. <laughs> um, and again, I know that sounds obvious, but uh, there has to be a definite intentionality with, with performing text, um, especially when it's accompanied. Um, and of course it depends on the acoustic that you're in um, and everything, but um, kind of like what both Jessica and Alicia mentioned, that that attention to detail to, you know, every every nuance, every decision, it's not arbitrary. Um, and so, you know, that's exciting. And I think having, you know, all of us working together on this project have that level of um, kind of, 
you know, aiming to to take care with every detail on that level is is going to be, I don't know, it's just cool to have to share that across the board. Um, but yeah, just just to respond really quickly to what Alicia said about um, the cathedral, the poem, the human error poem. I I had no idea it was about the Notre Dame, <laughs> the Notre Dame Cathedral. So uh, of course, we, I would assume that all of us remember that moment when we heard about what was happening. Um, but because just as as a poem not knowing what that that was what inspired it i mean i i found it it resonated with me a great deal because to me the cathedral sort of represented you know things that were external things anything that is um that maybe represents the establishment or anything like that and so sometimes those external structures or things that we think are what give our society and our humanity um, meaning, I guess, or significance. Sometimes those things have to be turned upside down um, in order to really, and, and is, in other words, destroyed in order for the the real essence of things, of ourselves, of our relationships, and of love to to kind of rise up or be born again or be reminded of that. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I it, I I love that poem. <laughs> Um, so I don't know. I'm trying to think about it right now, just realizing, oh, it was inspired by the Notre Dame. Uh, I don't know if that's going to change anything in terms of the interpretation, but I definitely feel like I'm going to need some time to process that. And yeah, it's just cool to always hear and learn new things about something that you've been sort of digging into, right? Especially from the person who created it. Um, so that's, I think that's just amazing. And um, yeah. So thank you, Alicia. <laughs> yeah, and if it's okay, I'd love to just jump in and say, you know, as as a poet, um, it's the greatest um, kind of, like I was saying before, that the cycle of creating something is not complete until someone else receives it and interprets it in their own, um, with their own ideas and their own experiences and their own heart. And so the fact that it was inspired by the Notre Dame burning uh, moment I don't think is any more uh, accurate of an interpretation or necessary information to have. Um, like there's no more weight to that than to your, uh, I love your reading of it. And um, just on a broader, since this is a literary arts conversation, just on a broader level, I think there's just so much room, um, I believe as a poet for readers and audiences to take meaning out of what we create. I mean, part of you know, an essay, an academic essay, you generally have a thesis and then you set out proving it and it's supposed to be laid out very clearly and you're supposed to be really taking people on a very specific journey. And if they end up in another realm, something has gone wrong. <laughs> Whereas I would say with poetry, it's intentionally leaves so much space. Um, I think in many ways music does as well for the listener, the audience, the reader, to make it their own and the interpretation that they come up with. Um, I feel very passionately that that is just as legitimate as any intention that the writer might've had. So I just really appreciate you uh, sharing your interpretation <laughs> and don't feel like you have to incorporate what I said about what occasioned the poem. <laughs> and also to jump in here, I feel that, um, you know, it, it was really nice for me just now to listen to Alicia just talk about how that yes this was the event that inspired it but the parallel can be about a, a relationship between two people and that was exactly what was in my head when i was writing it um and i feel uh also as a as a composer you know i've had there's a piece that i've written for myself and looper that it was a commission for a cellist and when she plays it she can play she plays it and with this very different interpretation, but she just owns it. And I feel like that's the beauty of what these collaborations are about is like, I have very specific places where all of my choices came from, but I'm not about to tell everybody everything about them. You know, I'm going to put all that I, I'm going to lay it all out in the score. I'm going to lay it all. Like, I'm sure when I see you guys in person, I'm going to be like more of this, do this, do this, do this for now. And then like, let's see what, what else is happening. But I I don't have to necessarily explain why, 
you know, because that's the, that's the beauty is that if, of like that liminal space where you don't know and that's where you're bringing yourself as an audience member, as a performer to whatever the art is and your experience of it is what's important is the thing that you carry away with you. Um, but it was also just nice in general that, uh, you know, uh, Alicia was in New York and we went out to lunch and we were really powwowing about a lot of things about our, you know, our lives on different coasts, but like married, having kids and, you know, just uh, thinking of the parallels of things that, you know, a lot of the same things she's writing about, I'm writing about, you know, in my work. And so, uh, but just in different ways and just seeing where things can connect, but also like being able to, everyone feeling good in their own place to be able to respond to how they need to respond. And so that is a wonderful thing about, and, and whatever happens is now is what's going to happen now, six months since months from now, you know, this, this piece could be doing other things with other people or even with the same group of people. Let me follow up with you, Jessica. The um, musicians in the orchestra are all uh, high school students or middle school students they're going to be uh, giving the premiere of your piece for, I think, for all of them, except for maybe one. This will be the seventh world premiere they're going to give this year. That's a lot of new music for uh, young people. So they'll have heard a lot of contemporary voices. Um, but it's important for them also that, especially the young women in the orchestra, to know, like, this is this is a path that people are very successfully treading uh, right now uh, without restrictions. Can you reflect on uh, your student experience and whether that was made up at what point it became apparent to you that anyone could be a composer or was that always in the air for you? First of all, I just want to just give a shout out to Portland Youth Philharmonic with the amazing programming that they have and to have youth orchestras play the sheer amount of contemporary music with living composers that you do. It's just like just makes my heart sing and is a model for folks around the country, honestly. Um, because it's so easy to go back to the canon. It's so easy to go back to what you know, quote unquote, what sells. I mean, it's we still have uh, symphony orchestras that are not programming uh, women at all, <laughs> you know, in seasons coming up uh, when we're over 50% of the population. You know, it's like, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, and even some schools, uh, not one woman composer on a whole season of, of undergraduate or graduate work. Um, and, but however, I, I have to say, it, I went to school in the nineties and I graduated in 92 and I, my background is that I started kind of making up stuff on the piano. I, and then in high school, I was part of a really great music, you know, I had great music educators out in Long Island that we were using very old Apple computers to do like uh, synthesizer Kurzweil stuff. And, and I wrote this little piece for viola and computer and I poured with it. And I spent so much of my high school time pouring my heart out on pianos and computers. And that was my nascent composer time. But when I graduated, uh, when I had auditioned for conservatory and gotten to Juilliard, I just had one thing in my mind. I'm like, I'm going to be a violist and I'm going to get an orchestra job. Like it didn't even occur to me to even think about composing because I guess because I didn't really see it at the time as a viable living, you know, or nor did I really see in front of me uh, women composers. Uh, and I'm really glad, honestly that I didn't at the time, because quite frankly, my 20, 20 year old self would not be ready for the kind of, uh, I think the adversity and also just the ownership of, I would need to have of, of protectiveness of my ideas that I would have needed to have at that age. And I just did not have the social or emotional capability for that. I had just enough of it, barely, for the, being a violist <laughs> and um, on a high level and being able to just, uh, you know, organize myself and my time. And uh, so I came into my creativity really and owning it in my forties after the age of 40. And I feel that, um, you know, I, I just 
lucked out that that whole personal awakening for me happened to be around the time 2014-15 where you had Caroline Shaw, Sarah Kirkland Snyder, Jesse Montgomery, all the people who now are my friends, who I know personally, um, they were just out there. Missy Bazzoli, you know, I mean, uh, that if I could look up and see them and doing things and it wasn't, it, um, yes, it was the start of like, well, we got to have a women's program or we got to make sure we check this box, which for any, you know, demographic that, that were people trying to instigate change, that has to happen for a while, but um, but in, but it should be part of the just a growing canon. And but I, I just lucked out that there were a lot of opportunities available to me when I started to write because it was a thing to do. <laughs> um, and I and but also I was able to you know count on my longtime reputation as a as a performer and my network as a as someone who's collaborated with people myself and knowing what players wanted or needed from a score and from parts and from uh idiomatic writing that I was lucky enough to kind of uh get out there quickly um but I I I it was just the timing honestly of having that visibility at that particular time um that made it certainly easier that's just fascinating because i never imagined that i would be involved or even really have the opportunity to be involved with so much new music that's sort of not what the sorts of orchestras like the portland youth philharmonic were thinking about even at the time i started in 2008 it was sort of like you know what super big difficult piece can you get them to accomplish and things have changed so quickly when I came here, it's like, oh, you need to do a big Mahler symphony that will get them excited. Now they they don't know who that is, really. They're like if you put a piece of music in front of them, it could be by Tchaikovsky, who they've heard of, but they don't know the, the pieces. They they know they exist, but they, they, they couldn't hum the tunes, unlike 40 years ago where every music student in high school knew, knew like, you know, how all those pieces went. So if you put something, whether it's a, a symphony by, um, we're doing Beethoven right now, as it turns out, but we just did a symphony by Ruth Gipps, an English composer. Uh, they loved that just as much because of its intrinsic value. And that's sort of the the, the great thing is they're, uh, they'll, they'll take it on its own merits, whatever it is. They'll find find the goodness in it, which we're, we're certainly finding in your piece that we're currently we're working very hard on. So um, Alicia Joe, having heard all this, are you, interested in in having more collaborations with composers and and have you had any specific ideas about that for the future i love collaborating across a lot of disciplines and so i love collaborating with composers there's um a wonderful composer in la who recently asked for some poems and i sent her some so i'm you know i'll, I'll put the word out to composers of the world <laughs> I generally have many, many hundreds of pages of drafts that I'm happy to share with you. Um, I consider it like a great honor to have composers set my words. So I'm sort of here doing my thing. And um, I don't think it's something I would necessarily be pitching, you know, because I think that it has to come from the composer, that they're interested in setting a contemporary poem or that they resonate with my work. Um, it seems like every few years, um, that will happen. And yeah, it's just, it's always really, it's always really incredible. Let me ask Anna, your ensemble is called In Milieribus, which I understand means amongst women. Can you talk about how you go about programming a season and deciding which composer should be included and what literary content you try to make thematic relations between and so forth? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it kind of really shifts, you know, from season to season, depending on sort of where our interests start heading and just different ideas that come up. Um, so in our, throughout our 16 year history, uh, initially, we sort of got together and started performing uh, solely early music. So medieval music, really, that was our focus. Um 
And because obviously that repertoire is so ancient, um, you know, there's a lot of decisions that have to be made and it's, it's, um, it's not always even clear, you know, if, if they were just male voices or female voices or, you know, what have you. Um, but that, that music just drew, like that's, each of the singers had an affinity for that, that genre, that style, that time period. So that's kind of initially how we got together. Um, and then more recently, uh, we started sort of branching out into more contemporary works and incorporating that alongside the, the older repertoire. Um, and then, I don't know, I guess just like a lot of groups, you know, with the times, you know, highlighting the marginalized groups and populations, um, not just between genders, but obviously, you know, racially and, and on so forth. Um, we've tried to be more mindful of what our programming reflects in terms of diversity. Um, there, because we are just, uh, because we are just, we just have trouble voices, it does present some challenges as far as what's out there. Um, and specifically, I found that music for women's voices, you know, the, the amount and quality oftentimes does pale in comparison to the availability of music for mixed voices or even men's voices. So, so that sort of has entered a little more centrally into our mission to try and find repertoire that, and showcase repertoire that, that is of a high quality and, um, and to perform it well and to also showcase, you know, female composers, um, both contemporary, but also, you know, through, through the centuries. I mean, we did a big concert solely on a Barbara Strazzi's music a while back uh, on the 400th anniversary of her um, birth when, you know, any, most male composers who kind of get to that milestone, there's like, you know, everywhere, you know, all groups are performing their music, um, but no, like hardly anybody was doing that and definitely not in Portland. So, um, we were able to secure, you know, several grants and present a very, very exciting program of her music. And it's just so amazing. We did a similar thing with Pauline Viardot uh, shortly after that. Um, and we're actually getting invitations uh, by presenters who who want to sort of present, you know, a millennia of women composers throughout the ages. And so, because you know, we've sung you know, Hildegard and Cassiani all the way to, you know, commissioning new work. So we do have that kind of breadth uh, of repertoire that we have performed. And because we are eight singers, you know, we can do like solos and duets and trios, but also like eight parts and things like that. So we have that versatility. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to lie. I mean, it is challenging. It's challenging because there's also a lot of music out there you don't want to just put on the program because it's by a female composer, right? Um, sometimes I feel like that happens too. And I don't know, I tend to be very discerning, um, want to make sure that it's of high quality. So there's a lot to sift through. <laughs> yeah. So final thoughts, Alicia, Joe, on what the audience who comes to see this presentation um, what your fondest hopes are for what they will take away um, from your work and as it's been gone through many different hands of treatment and, and voices and instruments. Well, I always hope that any audience that encounters work that I've been a part of um, feels moved in some way. And to me, that's so much more important than feeling like you get something or feeling like you understand something. And speaking as a poet, I think we often don't really teach poetry in that way in, you know, in the United States. Um, I've traveled to other countries where it is such a part of just the fabric of, of public life. Um, like I, in Nicaragua, it's just part of, part of civic life. I remember I was uh, giving a concert and this mayor mayor stood, stood up to introduce it and recited a poem that he had read, had composed himself. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that would really not happen here that a politician would open an event with a poem. Um, and I think just the sense that it all kinds of artwork belong to all of us. 
and that poetry is an art form that sometimes is very easily understood on a literal level. And sometimes it's a little more just like an evocative emotional experience. Um, and so, you know, again, even though I mentioned what inspired that poem about the cathedral, I don't care if anyone's thinking about Notre Dame at all. That just was, you know, kind of what, what I was inspired to, to write the poem uh, based on kind of watching this happen in the world. But what I care about is that in people's kind of hearts and minds as they're listening, the questions of being a human, living in a world where there's great beauty and also um, really deep challenges and inevitable suffering and how to navigate those, whether it's on the, the largest level or the smallest level and just sort of what it feels like to be human living through these experiences and that it might be something that's hard to put into words or name as we're going through our days, kind of getting through work and family and responsibilities. But hopefully if in this moment of kind of peace and art that happens in a concert hall or at a reading or performance, that it can be almost like a little meditation where we get to drop down beneath all of the busyness and to-do lists and to experience uh, what we feel and think about on kind of a deeper level. And that doesn't have to be what the artist was thinking about, but just literally what each person experiencing it is um, thinking about at that moment and what they need kind of support with or, or finding pleasure in the moment or just a sense of being not so alone. I think that's fantastic. And it's a, a good place to close this. Um, Alicia Jove, Rabin's Anna Song, Jessica Meyer, thank you so much for uh, spending this time. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. And hope we'll see everybody for the performance. That's David Hatner, Jessica Meyer, Alicia Joe Rabins, and Anna Song discussing collaboration. David Hatner is a conductor at Portland Youth Philharmonic. Jessica Meyer is a composer and violist. Alicia Joe Rabins is a poet, a musician, and a Torah scholar. And Anna Song is the co-founding artistic director and conductor at In Moli'i Rebus. The piece discussed in this episode, Because I Will Not Despair, is being performed by Camerata PYP, the Portland Youth Philharmonic Chamber Orchestra, on Friday, May 5th, 2023. More information at portlandyouthphil.org. We want to thank Noreen Murdoch and Jessica Vickers for their work to make this conversation possible. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson and Alberto Swem. Special thanks to literary arts marketing staff Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thank you also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thank you to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here. <laughs>